0: Good morning to all of you. As Chris mentioned, we are studying the Psalms of Ascent, or the Psalms of Degrees. Uh, They begin in Psalm 120, and they continue to Psalm 134. Uh, By way of reminder, for those who have been here, the Israelites, it was their custom to sing these psalms. As they traveled to Jerusalem annually to celebrate one of the three feasts of Jehovah, um, three of the seven feasts they were required to gather corporately in Jerusalem. And so as they made that journey, as they ascended to Jerusalem on those appointed days each year, they would sing these songs. And we see a parallel uh, today for the church. We are ascending Godward. We are ascending heavenward. And so these are psalms of ascent that we sing, we celebrate, we take to heart. These are psalms of degrees. Uh, These are psalms, simply put, which God uses, God employs to draw us upward. We need that. We need that because, uh, speaking for myself, I can state it emphatically, and I can state it emphatically for most of you, but I won't. I'll state it for myself. Uh, Most of us are prone to look downward. We stare at our feet most of the time. Uh, By that, I mean we gaze fixed on present conditions and circumstances, and um, we're a little bit like Peter, Peter walking on the water. He was okay. As long as he kept his eyes fixed on the Lord. But the moment he diverted his eyes to the waves and to the storm around him, he began to sink. That's us. And far too often in our daily experience, we find the circumstances and conditions to be like that tempest, that storm, overwhelming. And our eyes, we divert our eyes from God, from looking upward, and we look downward. And we fix our gaze on present circumstances. In these psalms, what God does, our God, our Father, um, is he deals with us very gently. We can almost compare him to to an earthly father. Uh, Some of us will have had this experience. You think of your little ones, which perhaps now are not so little. But you think of a time, us dads, when we needed to get our little ones' attention. And there they stood in front of us looking downward, and they wouldn't look up. What do we do? We place a finger underneath their chin, and gently we lift their head up, and we say what? Look at me. That is what our Heavenly Father is doing in these psalms. He is gently placing a finger, anthropologically speaking, um, uh, under our chins. And He is lifting our eyes, our heads, heavenward. And He is whispering in our ears, look. Gaze upon me. And that's what we have another case of here in Psalm 126. We sang a beautiful rendition, paraphrase of this psalm. I invite you, I encourage you to follow along now as I read it publicly for us. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Now, what I I want to do to to start off is I want to draw our attention to four details. Very briefly, this won't take long, four details in this psalm. Uh, These details are important because they will will help us get our minds around the psalm, grasp it, its intent, understand its content. And then from these four details uh, will emerge the psalmist's main message. So we can look at these four details, massage them a little bit, push them together, And from these four details, we'll have the main intent, the main message of the psalm, and then we'll be good to go. The first detail is this, number one. There are two sections, six verses, but the psalm naturally divides in two. Verses one through three, section number one, verses four through six, section number two. It's easy, it's simple to identify these sections because each begins with the same phrase. Look at the outset of verse 1, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. Now look at verse 4, the start. Restore our fortunes. And so twice the psalmist uses that word fortunes. His use of that word commences these two chief sections. That's detail number one. Detail number two is this, the meaning of the word fortunes. We find it twice. Verse 1, beginning the first section. Verse 4, beginning the second section. What does the psalmist mean by it? Firstly, he is not referring to some earthly treasure. He is not speaking of a treasure chest. He is not speaking of material wealth. Secondly, he is not speaking of good luck. Do not think in terms of a fortune cookie. That's not what what he means by the word. When he speaks of fortune. He is referring to the blessing of God. He is referring to God's favor. He is referring to the shining forth of God's countenance. The AV, that is the authorized version, and the New American Standard version are very helpful at this point. As a matter of fact, the psalm out of the Psalter, as we sang it earlier, is very helpful because they translate the Hebrew, placing an emphasis on what? God's restoration of the captive. That is the favor, that is the fortune that is in view. He's not talking about money. He's not talking about good luck or good karma. He is referring to the blessing of God, the tangible blessing of God, as experienced in restoration from captivity. Detail number three. In the first section, again verses one through three, the psalmist looks back. Look at what he says right at the outset of verse 1. When the Lord, past tense, restored the fortunes of Zion. In the second section, he turns around 180 degrees and he looks ahead. Look at verse 4, the outset. Restore our fortunes. So two sections, verses 1 through 3, verses 4 through 6. The beginning of each section, emphasis on this word fortune, fortunes. We know what he means by it. This restoration from captivity. But in this first section, he's looking where? He turns in one direction and he looks back in time and he speaks of a former day. He speaks of a past restoration. And then he pivots and he turns in the other direction. And he looks ahead and now what has caught his gaze, what has caught his attention is a future restoration. The fourth detail we must notice is this. His emphasis on present joy. Look at verse 2. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Look at verse 3. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Look at verse 5. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Look at verse 6. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. And so there is a stress, an onus, an emphasis on present joy. Did you get the four details? I'm not going to repeat them. You're on your own. Four details. Now, we take these, we juggle them a little bit, shake them about, press them together, and we hear quite clearly the psalmist's main message. Let me sum it up for you. You You'll find it in the sermon notes right at the top of the page. Joy. Let me modify that, qualify that. Present joy. Let me qualify it even further. Today's joy, right now, today, is fuel. By our appreciation of past restoration and our anticipation of future restoration. That is the psalmist's message. Now I'm going to walk through the psalm, keeping those two categories in view and explain what's going on from his perspective, his experience. And then once we've done that, we'll be in a great position, a great posture to bring it up to the cross and to interpret it and apply it in our day, our context. So look at the first section, appreciating past restoration. Let me read it again for us. When the Lord restored, and so it's a past restoration, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. We were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. What's going on? What's the context? When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, when? When did this take place? We have absolutely no idea. Sorry about that, but that's the way it is. One popular theory, very popular, you'll find it in the old authors, Calvin, and and some contemporary authors. One popular theory is that this psalm was penned by Ezra. Do you remember that name in the history of the nation of Israel? And so that takes us to to that time after the Babylonian exile. And so Babylon had invaded the southern kingdom of Judah, sacked, destroyed, burned to the ground, the city of Jerusalem. And the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar, they had taken captives back to Babylon. And God said through the prophet Jeremiah, it would last 70 years. And sure enough, under the decree of Cyrus, the emperor of Persia, a remnant returns out of Babylon to Jerusalem, where they engage in what? The rebuilding of the wall. The rebuilding of the entire city. And most importantly, the rebuilding of the temple. Ezra was a key player a key leader during that time period. And so some have thought this is the restoration that's in view during the days of Ezra. And Ezra is looking back and he's celebrating that event. I'm inclined to agree with that view, but I cannot state it emphatically. We do not know. From the Exodus, you look at the history of the nation of Israel, from the Exodus from Egypt to the restoration from Babylonian captivity, Their history throughout all of those centuries is the repetition of what? Restoration, deliverance. Restoration, deliverance. Anyone could have written this psalm. And anyone could have had any of those particular events, instances, examples of restoration or deliverance in view. So we don't know. But what we do know is this, that this restoration had three effects on the people. The psalmist identifies them beginning in the latter half of verse 1 right through to the end of verse 3. He speaks of three effects, past restoration, whatever it was. It impacted us, it influenced us, it effected us. How? Effect number one, it was awe-inspiring. Look at the very last statement in verse 1. We were like those who dreamed. It was a dream. Some of us weren't even sure it was real. It was unimaginable. It was inexplicable. Some people think they're living the dream when they've purchased a country home, a beautiful lot, or a classic car. Some people think they're living the dream when they're able to vacation in exotic places, purchase the latest gizmo or gadget or retire at an early age. Now here the psalmist speaks of dreaming beyond his wildest imagination, this restoration, this deliverance, this reconciliation with the living God. It was like a dream. It was surprising and overwhelming. It was unexpected and inexplicable. It was, in a word, awe inspiring. Effect number two, it was joy inducing. Look what he says in the second verse. Then our mouth was filled with what? Laughter. He builds on it. And our tongue with shouts of joy. And so this was a spine tingling, ear piercing, knee slapping, roof raising time of celebration. Joy is not about living large or looking good. Joy is about being delivered. Joy is about being restored and reconciled to God. And the drastic change in their collective experience, the drastic change in their fortunes, was like moving from darkness to light, from death to life. Mouths filled with joy, laughter. And tongues filled with shouts of joy. Effect number three. It was God glorifying. What do the nations what did the nations say? What did the Gentiles declare as they witnessed this momentous event right at the end of verse two? The Lord, they attribute it to the Lord Yahweh, the Lord has done great things for them. Not an act of worship, they're simply sharing news. They're simply stating the obvious, had little impact upon them, cognitively or spirit. more importantly, spiritually. But look, the people of God take up the cry in verse 3. Yes, the Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. Look at that statement. The Lord has done great things for them. They take it, they personalize it. The Lord has done great things for us. Who? The Lord. What have we learned concerning the Lord in the Psalms of Ascent so far? We have learned that He is enthroned in the heavens above. We have discovered that He is the Creator, the Maker of heaven and earth. We have discovered that He is the Keeper of His people. We have learned that He is like a wall, mountains which surround His people. It is the Lord. What? What has He done? He has done great things. These things are great because they are miraculous and marvelous. Manifestations of His power. These things are great because they are unexpected and undeserved manifestations of His grace. These things are great because they are inscrutable and inexplicable manifestations of His wisdom. Why? Why has the Lord done great things? Look at the last two words in the statement. For us. That's why He's done it. The Lord. The Maker of Heaven and Earth, the One who is enthroned in Majesty, encircled by the Seraphim, the One who is Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. He has done great things, things that make us, oh, we feel as though we are we're we're dreaming. We are in a dream, and why has He done it? He has done it for us, and so there is the Psalmist, and he's looking back at what event specifically. I wish I knew. But for whatever reason, the Spirit of God has not seen fit to reveal that to us. You know, we've seen that's a recurring theme, isn't it, in all these psalms. We don't know what the specific circumstances are. And I suppose that's intentional when we stop and think about it. The, the immediate circumstances aren't all that important. The Spirit of God wants us to go back to these psalms. The Spirit of God wants us to be able to enter into the experience of the psalmist. The Spirit of God wants us to learn how the psalmist then shifts his gaze from events and circumstances and conditions heavenward. And the Spirit of God wants us to learn that immediately. And the Spirit of God wants us to apply that immediately to our circumstances, our conditions. And so there he is looking back. And he expresses his appreciation of past restoration. And now again, he swivels and he looks ahead. Verses 4 through 6. And here he shares his anticipation of future restoration. Let me read it again. Restore our fortunes. That's odd. He's just declared that the Lord has restored their fortunes. Make up your mind. Why is he now saying, restore our fortunes, if the Lord already restored their fortunes? Restore our fortunes, O Lord. Oh, here's a word picture. Like streams in the Negeb. Here's another word picture, verse 5. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. And so he's looked back. Oh, and he gets a smile over, it. you know, a smile just breaks out across his face. He gets a warm, fuzzy feeling. His heart warms with the thoughts and the recollections of that past deliverance, that past restoration. Oh, when the Lord restored our fortunes, marvelous, tremendous. Now he swivels from the present, from the past to the future, and now utters this prayer, this request, this petition, Lord, restore our fortunes fortunes. In other words, that was good, but we still need something more. That was marvelous. I'm not minimizing it, not by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm looking for something even greater. That was momentous. It was stupendous. It was like a dream. Unbelievable. Unimaginable. And yet, Lord, there is still something missing. Restore our fortunes. To drive it home, he uses those two, those two word pictures. They're, they're lo- we struggle with these a little bit because we don't... The first is geographical. The second is agricultural. And we're not so much so geographically minded anymore. We get in our cars and the engineers... You know, I've already plowed through the geography with our highways and roads. And so we don't pay too much attention. Agriculture, some of us own a a cow or two, but that's about it. And so it gets somewhat lost, but we can empathize. We can relate somewhat. And so the first word picture is geographical. And here he's emphasizing what? This move from debilitating drought to overflowing rivers. How do we get that out of the statement in verse 4, like streams in the Negev? Negev is southern Israel. Southern Israel is bone dry. It is arid. And southern Israel is covered with what are called wadis, W-A-D-I-S. These are seasonal streams and riverbeds. You know what I'm talking about because we have them around here. Some of you probably even have them on your property. Now for two, three years, there it is, that stream bed, that river bed, and it is brown, it is parched, it is ugly, it is cracked. And other than a few critters scurrying from rock to rock, there is nothing growing, there is nothing happening. And then all of a sudden, we get a few days of rain or a torrential downpour, and it fills. That's what southern Israel is like. And the psalmist, he is saying, look, that's what my present experience is like. I'm like a wadi. We like a wadi, bone dry, parched, brown, nothing is growing, and we're waiting for what? Future restoration. Anticipating what? Future restoration, which when it comes will be like that torrential downpour that fills the wadi, overflows its banks soaking the soil, nourishing all that lies beneath the surface, stirring to life an array of plants and flowers, thereby unleashing a bouquet of color. That is the word picture. But he builds on it with a second word picture. Now it's agricultural. And his main point is this, moving from sowing in tears to reaping with joy. What does it mean to sow in tears in verse 5? To, to sow uh, our seed weeping at the start of verse 6? Well, you try taking seed and going out into, a, into land where it hasn't rained for a year. And the wind is just blowing the soil, the dust here, there, everywhere. And you're throwing your seed, your grain to the wind. You're throwing it to the dust. It is hopeless. It's actually rather pathetic. You know from your vantage point that seed doesn't have any hope. And you're sowing it in tears because you're hungry, your family is hungry, your community is hungry, the entire nation is languishing under a drought. What is the point in this? Here I go again, third year in a row, fourth year in a row, maybe the fifth year in a row, sowing this seed knowing that it falls on the ground in dust. And humanly speaking, there is no hope. But what happened? God sends the rain. And the rain completely transforms the earth, the soil. That seed germinates. That shoot appears and pierces up through the ground. That grain begins to grow. And that farmer reaps a bountiful harvest. Not with tears, but with joy. Those are the word pictures. Geographical, agricultural, as he's pivoted. And he's moved from the past, his past appreciation, his appreciation for past restoration, deliverance. And he now looks ahead, his anticipation of future restoration and how he needs it because he is in a dry and weary land. Did you get all that? That's the psalm. Now, what are we to make of it? What are we to do with that? As with the entire Old Testament, we bring it up to Calvary's cross, and we shine the light of the Lord Jesus Christ upon it. And in so doing, the gray just sort of dissipates. The pieces in the jigsaw puzzle all fall into place, and we behold its significance, its application for us. And I want to consider this application on two levels. First, on a macro, macro level. What do I I mean by that? Universal. Universal. And then secondly, flowing from the macro level, the universal application, I want us to hone in on a micro level, personal application. So we begin big. We begin with the macro, macro level. What's going on here? Just like the psalmist, as Christians right now, we celebrate past restoration, do we not? Each of Israel's deliverances from the exodus from Egypt to the restoration of the remnant from Babylon, and everything in between is designed for a purpose. it is foreshadowing the exodus the, the, the exodus from Egypt, the exodus from Babylon, and everything in between these events are foreshadowing what a far greater deliverance. A far greater restoration. A restoration which eclipses anything in the national history of the nation of Israel. It is the deliverance accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me sum it up for us in four truths. Here is truth number one. Pray by the Spirit of God. We take these to heart and with renewed vigor. These become vivid and alive for us. These four beautiful truths. Number one. We were bound. Under sin's dominion. That was our condition. Imagine the deepest dungeon. Imagine the darkest cell. Imagine the strongest chain. And imagine the wickedest jailer. And you haven't even come close to the bondage we were in. Our bondage to sin. The dominion of sin ruling and reigning and exerting absolute power and sway and influence over us. Truth number two, Christ paid the penalty for our sin. And Christ broke the power of our sin upon Calvary's cross. Truth number three, Christ offers sinners forgiveness. He offers rebels amnesty. He offers enemies peace. He offers outsiders acceptance. He offers prisoners liberty. He offers those heading to hell eternity in heaven. And for those of us who are believers, who are Christians, there was a moment in time where that offer, that offer became real by the power of the Holy Spirit. We experienced that effectual call whereby the Spirit rushed upon us, at times like a torrential downpour, at times just like a soft dew or, or pleasant mist, rain falling. But whatever the experience, it was the power of the Spirit of God. It was God's created power that opened our eyes to behold the splendor of God and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to accept that offer of salvation in Christ. And now as Christians in Christ, we breathe the air of freedom. And as we look back, it is awe-inspiring. It's like a dream. Can this be true? It is joy-inducing, mouths and lips and tongues filled with laughter. And it is God-glorifying. The Lord has done great things for us. We look back. And yes, we revel and delight in our appreciation of past restoration. But like the psalmist, we now look ahead. And what is there now? There is anticipation of what? Future restoration. Why? Because, brothers and sisters, we are only partly saved. We are only partly redeemed. We are being upheld. We are being guarded by the power of God through faith for that salvation to be revealed at the last time. And right now, at times, collectively as the church, we find ourselves in the bed of that wadi, that dry riverbed, that dry stream. We find ourselves sowing, casting our seed in tears. Because we are only partly saved and we live with the tension of being only partly saved. And as Christians, we live still in this world under the curse. And because we live under the curse, we experience such trials. We experience such afflictions, physical, mental, and otherwise. We experience personal loss. We experience debilitating illness. We experience rejection, isolation, all of these sorts of things. And at times, it can only be compared to living in a dry and weary land. Yes, we're looking back in past appreciation, but we know there is plenty more to come. And we live in anticipation of future restoration, the new heaven and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. That is a macro level, universal. Now let me bring it down and really personalize it to a micro level. And let me begin by asking you, Christian, point blank, are you a dried up and shriveling Christian? Many of us are, I dare say. Dried up and shriveling Christians who for some time, months, years, decades, have been sowing seeds in years. That has been our existence. How do we take this song? How do we take these truths living with present joy as we gaze backward our appreciation of past restoration as we gaze forward our anticipation of future restoration? How does that cultivate present joy right now? What is it I must focus on right now? How is it I survive the drought right now? And I hope I am not guilty of oversimplifying, but I want to share three key truths with, us, with you this morning. Three key truths I pray I take to heart. and Three truths I pray we all take to heart. The first is this. The dried up shriveled Christian sowing seed in tears. Feeling as though we are caught in a dry and weary land. Truth number one. This doesn't last forever. It doesn't last forever. Life and the Christian life, we all, each of us, as believers, those of us who are believers, we can testify to this. You could put up your hand and you could testify to it easily, quite easily, effortlessly. Our our, our experience, our Christian sojourn is just like that. The penny dropped for many of us, I'm sure, as we got into this song. Yeah, just like that wadi, just like that seasonal riverbed, that there are times, there are times where it's just barrenness, that uh, the word of God does not stir what it used to stir in me. Uh, There there are times where, where debilitating illness has got the better of me. There are times where the mental anguish or personal loss, it, 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 it's just there, so close, so frontal, and I can't see anything else. There are times people talk about the light at the end of the tunnel. There's no light at the end of my tunnel. Nothing. Nothing but darkness as we're stuck between valleys, valleys of immeasurable different distance. And here's the thing we must understand. We all find ourselves in the wadi, the dry, parched, broken, Cracked riverbed, stream bed. But the rains always come. Now hear this. I'm going to speak of four categories. For some of us, they come regularly. Great times of refreshing. Great times of blessing. uh, Physical health. Great health. Peace in the home. Prosperity, blessing at work, peace and stability, surrounded by family, good reputation, and um, the word alive and vivid and real, fellowship sweet. At times, for some of us, these rains descend regularly. Category number two, for some of us, they descend semi-regularly. There are Long periods of time between the rainfalls and, and, and that, so long that, that that riverbed, I'm not even sure it's a riverbed. Any. I'm not even sure we can call it that because it's been quite a while since it's seen a drop of rain. But then suddenly the rain comes and descends. There's a third category of people. Some of us experience these showers, these blessings. Rarely. Rarely better part of a lifetime passes. And, and the distance of this drought, all-encompassing and debilitating and draining drought, it is unbelievable. And you know where I'm going with the fourth category. Some of us never experienced these showers in this life. Four categories. But here is the absolute assurance. The showers are coming. Whether we experience them now regularly, semi-regularly, rarely or never. Whether God in his good providence and infinite wisdom sees fit to dispose, bestow these previews and glimpses and foretastes of glory upon us now or not. We have this absolute certainty that momentary light Affliction is fleeting, and it is nothing in comparison to the eternal weight of glory. I didn't hear one amen, because most of us struggle to really believe that. I do. We struggle. We struggle. The second truth I want to affirm is part of the reason why we struggle. Here it is. For those of us where it's a rare experience, or perhaps you're saying, never, that's me. I thought it was the only one. There are others. Here here is why it becomes such a trial. Um, The dry periods, the dry riverbed, the seed sown in tears, doesn't change God's love for us. We need to say that. We need to say that. I mean, I've been long enough here, I can say, as Americans... We need to, I'll put myself in that category, North Americans. We need to hear that. Why? Because evangelicalism in this country has equated God's blessing and favor with material prosperity. And it is a lie. And it is so debilitating to Christians. Why aren't I healthy? Why aren't I prospering? Why isn't it all going well? Why is it drought upon drought upon drought God maybe doesn't really like me. That's the only way I can explain it, because I've heard it. I have been been bombarded with this message continually that God's grace is performance-based, and that God's grace and blessing is naturally manifested in prosperity and a happy, clappy life. And I've been bombarded and bombarded and bombarded with this message. Oh, and the confusion it creates in my mind. Well, it just isn't all coming together. Therefore, ergo, it can only mean one thing. I'm not one of God's favorites. God isn't looking kindly upon me. God maybe isn't, he isn't my father. No, this doesn't change God's love for us. Write down this reference if you're not aware of it already. Psalm 56, 8. You, O Lord, have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? What's he saying? Three beautiful word pictures there. What's he saying? The Father notices. Not only does he notice, he counts. He keeps track. He has it stored away. And the present suffering, the present anguish, the present drought will give way one day. Yes, we might experience foretastes of it now in this life, but there's no assurance, there's no guarantee. But there is absolute assurance guarantee we will experience it in full in that day yet future. He will pour out all those blessings, that wonderful inheritance he has reserved for us. Oh, believer, believe it. The meek shall inherit the earth. The meek shall inherit the earth. A renewed heavens and earth in which righteousness dwells. Be convinced of the Father's attention. For through him we have access, that is through Christ, we have access in one spirit to the Father. That means in Christ we speak to the Father. Do you know what that's called? That's called prayer. And in Christ the Father speaks to us. Do you know what that is? That's scripture. Christian, do you understand right now that the Father is speaking to you? There's no doubt about that. The only issue in the matter is this are you listening? As the word of God is opened, and as the word of God is put on display, and as the word of God is expounded, and the word of God is applied, if what I say is in keeping the veracity is self-evident in the light of Scripture, you can be guaranteed that God is speaking to you by His word. Oh, be assured of the Father's attention. Be assured of the Father's affection. But to all who did receive Christ, Who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The Father's attention, even if you are in the midst of a 40-year-long drought. And the Father's affection, even if you have sown a ton of seed in tears. The third truth I need to impart is bringing us gradually back to the main message of the song. The fact that we find ourselves in that dry riverbed and throwing all that seed out there to the dust, it doesn't stifle present joy. It does not stifle present joy. It does not alter today's joy. Because joy is fueled by what? Faith. And for the Christian, faith is fixed on what? Our appreciation of what God has Done in the past. And our anticipation of what God will most certainly, absolutely, no questions asked, do in the future. We look back. Our appreciation of past deliverance. And we look ahead. Our future appreciation of, of future deliverance. And that gives us by faith present joy. We look back. John Flavel says, bring your soul, Christian, bring your soul to a reconciled God in Christ, to the covenant of grace, to the sweet promises of the gospel. Set before your soul the joys, comforts, and earnests of the Spirit. And if it be a sanctified, if it be a renewed soul, it can make a rich feast upon these, no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in the midst of. And we look ahead, appreciation of future deliverance. Richard Baxter writes, Christian, believe it, and think on it. You will be embraced eternally in the arms of that love which is from everlasting and will extend to everlasting. That love which brought the Son of God from heaven to earth, from earth to the cross, from the cross to the grave, from the grave to glory, that love will eternally embrace you. Faith, by the work of the Spirit of God, cultivated, energized, created through the preaching of the Word, the study of the Word, faith, fixed upon past deliverance, fixed upon future deliverance, is the fuel that flames, that fires present joy. These spiritual realities, past and future, Transcend all present circumstances. Joy is fueled. Here's the main message again. Joy is fueled by our appreciation of past restoration and our anticipation of future restoration. And that is the psalmist's message. I pray the Spirit of God helps us to understand it. Intellectually, cognitively, certainly. I pray the Spirit of God helps us to live in accordance with it this day and each day. Henceforth, let's pray. Our Father, we do, as we have just stated, seek your blessing upon what has been declared and proclaimed, what has been opened. We pray now that you would open our eyes, open our minds, open our hearts to receive. By your Spirit, may your truth take hold. May your word be implanted deep within. May we take it and eat it. May we assimilate it. May we ask the tough questions. May we answer those tough questions in the light of Scripture. May we examine every crevice of our lives and our hearts and see how you speak to our circumstances and conditions through your word. And we pray that by the proclamation of your word, you would indeed cultivate and nourish our faith this day. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we ask it. Amen.